The subject of these lectures will be the cardinal virtues. Now, on two different occasions since coming to St. Timothy's, I have begun to present to you the cardinal virtues. On the first occasion, I got as far as the end of prudence, which is the first of the cardinal virtues, and I expended eight weeks on that. The second shot I took at it, we got as far as justice. That is because I skipped very quickly through prudence and then spent another six weeks on justice. I'm going to start again, and this time I am determined to finish the cardinal virtues in, is it six weeks I have? There were six weeks of Lent. Good. First of all, it is quite legitimate for anyone to ask, why does one speak about virtues at all? And perhaps the best way for me anyway to understand that and to maybe convey it to you is that I am a keeper of bees. Bees are they're a remarkable study. They have one of the most complicated social structures in existence next to, say, the British system. They have a queen too, of course, you know that. Yeah. They do the most extraordinary things. They do the drawing out of beautiful little cells that are so geometrically precise and so, so what shall we say, economic of matter that the greatest engineers cannot arrive at a more precise configuration to use material structures to their greatest advantage. In fact, the story is told of one great engineer who devised some sort of shape or structure, the angles of which were the optimum in his estimation for bearing weight. And then he, he checked and he saw that his, his determination was very close to that of the bee. And he checked his own work again and found that the bee was right. I think it's, it's remarkable how these little creatures do so many things. They are taught to draw that thing out. They are taught to feed each other. They are taught to groom. No, they're not taught. You see, that's the point. They're not taught at all. They do these things. They go off and, and, and get some, some nectar sauce somewhere, and then they come back, and it's delightful to watch them. The, the guard bees or the, or the searcher bees, they come back and they do a little dance. Now, I, we, we have aerobics in this place, but we have no dance classes for bees. And neither have I ever seen, and I wager nobody has ever seen, queens lining up worker bees and teaching them to dance. They don't teach them at all, you see. The remarkable thing is that these bees do all that they do, and they do it perfectly, but they do it without any training, any learning, whatever. They do it by instinct. Their perfection is very like the perfection of the crystal, which apparently in the line of evolution has achieved a remarkable level of perfection, but at a very low level of being. And so it seems that instinct in the animals, though they are capable of incredible and beautiful and even social activities, nevertheless instinct is what guides them, they don't need engineering schools or dance schools or any schools of this nature. And sometimes, frankly, especially when I have to teach a little, I, I bemoan the fact that human beings aren't a little more like bees. 
But then, upon second thoughts, of course, I cannot possibly wish that at all. For it is our greatness that although there be in us some definitely instinctual things, and there are, nevertheless, the vast majority of our task depends upon our own free choice. This is the extraordinary single source of the essential dignity of the human person, that we alone, of all of the things in this world, must, in the midst of an almost infinite complexity, find our own way, map our own journeys, determine on our own courses, and then pursue them with an alacrity that is somewhat, certainly somewhat less than the instinctual alacrity that you find among my bees. Our glory then really consists in the fact that we must find our way without the help of necessity, without the help of instinct. We must find our way through an enormously complex world. And it is because of that fundamentally that we must learn habitual ways of doing things. Otherwise, we are lost in the midst of complexity. Now, as a remote preparation for this course, and this probably will cause some of you to smile, and I say, go ahead and smile. I read Plato's Symposium. How many of you were, were subjected to it in college? Poor Plato's Symposium. What a lovely piece of writing, though. And you know, when I came to the, the speech given by Agathon in praise of love, I was reminded again that Agathon, when he praises love, praises it under the aspect of four things. And it's rather remarkable to see what those four things are. They are prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. The four mighty cardinal virtues. For Agathon, love is expressed along these four main channels. And now this, five centuries before Christ, this in a world divorced from the world of Revelation, the Jewish world. This among the pagan philosophers of Greece. And then, of course, reading on, I, I, I saw that the great Socrates seemed to, to deny the validity of Agathon's description of love and went instead into this marvelous journey to the absolute ideal beauty that he says at the inst instruction of Diotima, he is told that, that love itself consists in ultimate admiration of absolute beauty. And in a sense you feel that the great teacher has contradicted the young student. But then, why am I telling you these things? They're important. Alcibiades comes in stony drunk. I mean, absolutely footless, he comes in. 
and he is asked to join the party. And then because everybody else has spoken about love, Alcibiades is also asked to speak on the subject. He prefers, however, not to speak on love, but rather to speak about the incredible and, and unbelievable Socrates. And what are the four qualities he speaks of in Socrates? Prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. Where he defines the living man in terms of the four things that Agathon, before he came in at all, had characterized as the most perfect expression of love. There is some significance here. In other words, at least the human mind seems to be at home in, in dealing with these matters. So perhaps if five centuries before Christ, among the Greeks, and then throughout the biblical tradition, and in the Western tradition of the philosophic development of the Western concept of man, if these things have, until quite recently, remained the way in which men have looked upon the project of their lives, I thought it might not be unwise for us to spend a little time looking at these extraordinary descriptions of the ideal man in action. For that is what a consideration of the virtues really is. You see man, and please man-woman, both are contained here, don't make me self-conscious about this whole business. Man, you see woman, shall I say woman instead? You see man defined in action according to certain significant and fundamental patterns which are indeed fundamental. They are at the very root and source of his activity. Now, what I'm going to do, to do tonight as, as part of my very definite plan is to give you a very brief summary of prudence. First of all, if I were to ask those of you who did not attend either of the courses I gave on this already, what prudence is. You probably would consider that it is some sort of, of coy and careful watchfulness. You know, the prudent man is always looking out for his own advantage. He will not do anything that is unsafe. A prudent man never does anything that is unsafe, right? He'll never get into a fight because he's too cute, you say. He will avoid all conflict that are not to his own advantage. Isn't that the sort of modern, popular understanding of prudence? <laughs> yes, it is. What is the understanding Agathon had, and Socrates, and Alcibiades? What is the understanding Paul had? What is the understanding Christ had? What is the understanding Augustine and Thomas had? For them, prudence is a quality of mind that is developed by the individual which is based upon indeed some fundamental givens in the mind itself. Based upon some fundamental givens, namely the ability or perception of the fundamental principles. The principles of contradiction, the principles of contrariety, the principles of identity. But based upon this alone, there is developed by the living man 
the ability to see what is true and seeing what is true to direct his activity in accordance with truth. That is a description of prudence. It is the ability to turn toward reality and understand it, know it, and then knowing it to turn that light upon what is to be done and proceed with an unerring accuracy to do according to reality. If you remember one of the scenes in, in the gospel where Jesus says, the children of this generation love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And were they to bring their deeds to the light, they would know that they are evil. They do not wish to do this. Therefore, they love the darkness rather than the light. Now, I'm not, I'm not asking you to consider that incredible piece of psychology that Jesus enunciates there. What I'm asking you to notice, though, really, is his use of the light. What is the light in his language? The light. He himself is the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. What is the light? It is truth. The truth will set you free. He said to those members of the, San, of the scribes and Pharisees who had come over to his side. And they objected, we have never been slaves to any man. And he said, the man who is in sin is a slave to sin. Therefore I say, the truth will make you free. Now here you have the incipient concept of what prudence is. Prudence is that acquired ability, that learned ability, based upon the mind's own power to know the real. The ability to know what is true, and then to turn that light upon what is to be done and order one's life and one's activities according to the light. Now, it's not just reason alone, of course. In the mind of the Christian theologian, the Christian philosopher, the light here includes the light of the mind, the natural power of reason. But it also includes the light of revelation that Jesus is speaking of, the light that he came to cast upon the world. It is the ability to see all of that and seeing it to turn that light upon oneself, one's behavior, one's life, one's project, one's future, and to act according to the light. That is prudence. Now, let's, let's talk about it a little more, because it is a, a fantastic sort of thing, and nevertheless is already used by all of us. Incidentally, just parenthetically for the moment, prudence is very close to conscience. What is conscience? What is the etymology of conscience? Conscientia, to act with knowledge. See, there you go.
conscientia. We, we, again, of course, in, in our understanding of conscience, it's like a little, a little fellow in, in, on our shoulder who whisper, whispers to us, now, that's naughty, you are not to do this, or that's good, you can do that, you see. But conscience is simply that ability we have, that responsibility we have, to act in accordance with truth. Prudence and conscience are very close together. Let us, let us see how one is to develop prudence. Maybe first we should, we should just give two sentences to a very important premise here. I have said that the mind is capable of knowing truth. I'll have to ask you to accept that because we don't have time to go into the epistemological problem, you say. But how is it that it is important for the individual person to act in accordance with the truth that he sees. Hmm. What is the truth he sees? He examines a horse and a donkey and a sheep and grass growing and trees and flowers and weather and all sorts of things. And from his examination there flows into his mind knowledge of these things. Why? Because God made all things. And all things, therefore, are made according to a pattern in God's mind. I think it was Gregory the Great who said that all things have pre-plans in God's mind. Everything is made. Please read the introduction to St. John's Gospel. Through him all things were made, and without him there was nothing made without him. All things are made according to the pattern of God's knowledge. Each thing then in some way uh, imprisons or, or, or contains or is an expression of something in God's mind. Each thing has meaning. That's what we mean. And the mind of man, the individual human mind, looking upon the thing is able to penetrate its, its appearances and go to its inner meaning and find there what the meaning that god has put in it it's almost an encounter with god then on the natural level when one does indeed know and study the beauty of the world that god has made and it is perhaps one of the tragedies of the 20th century that we do it less and less not enough people keep bees you should. You have your little gardens and, and your, your little pots, potted plants and these things. That's, that's very important because these are the things God made. We live in the midst of things man made, you see, and we're inclined to forget God. Although even the things man made serve as a pretty good example of what I'm talking about here where knowledge is concerned. You, you, you see a table. You don't believe that that appeared by magic like that. You know that somebody conceived it in his mind, somebody drew up the plan, somebody produced it according to the plan, right? And from the table you can derive the plan, correct? If you're clever enough. Well, a simple table, even the most stupid of us can derive the plan of a simple table. The fact that it is made means that it has a plan. The fact that it has a plan means that it is intelligible. It has a truth that the mind can derive from it. And it is that book that God first wrote 
that is the mind's natural, natural guide in the whole performance of the project of life. And it is the second book then, the book of Revelation, which is in the prophets and finally in Jesus himself and in the church speaking in Jesus' name. It is in that that we have the other expression of God's mind, which therefore the mind of man must absorb and absorbing must begin to act in accordance with it. The world is a thing placed between God and man. The world has meaning because it is created. It's important to know that. And so it is important to be alive in the presence of the world. And so many of us are not. I, I, I came back this, this, this afternoon, I had to go down and pick up one of these wretched hour-long tape so that I wouldn't be interrupted halfway through my lecture. And, and I coming back, I drove along this new highway that, that one of our great builders has given to us as his donation to our well-being. And, and even that which is a new highway has become so familiar to me that now I drive over it without being aware of it at all. I wager that you people who, who have the incredible ability to go on that 66 twice a day and risk your immortal souls in doing so, <laughs> that you probably are unconscious of most of the things along that road. See, we, we are not alive in the presence of things. And you married people, uh, don't, don't tell each other this, but do by your eye response admit that I'm right when I say that one of the greatest dangers in marriage is that familiarity by which you take the other totally for granted the other is just a kind of a lump there that is convenient and friendly you know like like a like a, a puppy dog or something we are not alive to each other we are not alive to being we're not alive to the world. Our minds are largely dead. In fact, I wager that it is not at all usual for most of us to have anything that remotely resembles an original thought. I'm sorry, please, I don't wish to, to insult you, but most, most of our, most of what we call our thought, we've picked up here, there, and yonder generally uncritically. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that, please, I'm not lecturing you as though I were the perfect one. I'm talking about ourselves. We take the authority of others too much for granted. Some non-entity down here who gets paid by the word for putting out a column in that scandal rag every morning, we take what he says practically at face value. Oh, well, George Will said it in his column, you know. So what? I mean, I like George Will. I think generally he's a rather good fellow. But why should I take George Will's word? Why should my awareness of my world be in any way ruled by what Mr. Will says or thinks? We are not second-hand. We were never made before. And we'll never be made again. So why are we not conscious? Why are we not alive to each other? to the world, to things. Why do we go around somnambulantly? I mean, the scientists tell us that we use about, what, 30% of our brain capacity? 
30%. The rest of it is dormant. Yes, it is. Don't dare to shake his head at me over there. <laughs> One of the philosophers in the early part of this century, Martin Heidegger by name, said that in all probability, if you say that 30% of the mind is being used by us, you're exaggerating. We are not conscious. We are only minimally aware. And one of the things required for a lively prudence is coming awake to the wonder of things. Seeing again, yes, going out and, as these sentimentalists say, finding time to touch the rose petals. Well, I don't say just touch them. I say consume them mentally. See them grow. Behold the lilies of the field, he said, how they grow. Only Bruno could tell us how they grow. Now the rest of us wouldn't be even aware of it. We haven't noticed them recently, you see. They pop up in our yards, and there they are. Voila. Spring is here, folks. Let's get all of our suntan lotion out and get ourselves ready for another whoppy season, you see. But behold the lilies of the field, Jesus said, how they grow. We no longer know, you see. Our feet being shod, we no longer feel the earth. We go for our facts to television and the newspapers. We don't sit with each other and converse alive with each other anymore. We're secondhand. And prudence demands a lively presence to the world, an awareness of its wonder and of its freshness. There dwells the dearest freshness deep down things, Gerard Manley Hopkins said. When did you lately notice it? A memory that is true, St. Thomas says, is the greatest asset for prudence, a memory that is true to reality. And he says that the greatest danger to our memory, even our own memory of past experiences, is that judgment, or what we call prejudice, will even twist our own memory of the past. And you know that happens. It happened to me on one classic occasion. And if I had time, I'd tell you, but let me just very quickly give you the outlines of it. Because I think it's important for us to know how, how in danger we are by not being awake and alive in the presence of the wonders around us. I consider myself to be a fairly decent debater. I was on one occasion involved in a debate. I thought I could handle the matter with ease. I was wrong. It wasn't a formal debate, but it was formal enough to, for me to suffer shame as a result of what happened. Uh, the fellow wiped the floor with me. Absolutely wiped the floor with me. I lost miserably, totally. I, I trickled out under the door. Um, I, I, was, I, was, I was deeply, deeply dispossessed of any sort of self-respect. And that night I crawled home, and I closed the door behind me, and I put on the lock, and if I had booze in the house and were a drinking man, I would have tied one on, but I didn't. <laughs> First of all, because I'm not a drinking man, but secondly, because I had no booze in the house. 
But then I started thinking about that debate, you see. And I thought, no, wait a minute here. We just, just hang on here. No, just hang on. That point I made rather well. That point. And nobody noticed that, you see. The point was made with such subtlety that these dummies weren't able to understand it. <laughs> see? Yes, all right. Well, now that makes me, I, I start feeling a bit better. Well, yes, of course. It's, uh, that, that's what happens when you have to deal with fools, you see. <laughs> yes. And, and then I got to another point or two, and indeed, quite probably, I had scored more points than I realized. But when I got through with myself that evening, I had won that debate. <laughs> it was the stupid audience, you see, that lacked the intelligence, the subtlety of perception, the precision of judgment. It was they were wrong. I had won the debate. And then God, in his mercy, gave me one of his lovely kicks in the posterior. And I said, oh, Brian, come on, you lost it. You lost it brutally, and you're trying now to change your memory of the past. We do it, dear ones. We must learn to be faithful to the present, to be aware of it, to let all, and this is why Thomas says that a healthy body is required for prudence. A body that is highly sensitive, he says, is required. It isn't a dull, non-sensuous experience, this experience of virtue. That's for the Stoics. The Stoics, were, they were terrible people. Who would ever want to have a Stoic for a husband, for instance, or a wife? My God, they would be absolutely unbearable. Justi they would justify immediately, on principle, instantaneous divorce. They were dull people. All emotion was wrong. All passion was wrong. Not for Thomas. Passion has its place. Emotion definitely has its, has its place. Sensuous, sensuous experience is part of the noetic experience. The first time I ever harvested honey was down in St. Lawrence Parish. I considered it then, and I've characterized it since, as the most sensuous experience of my life. And somebody looked at me strangely and said, my, how do you get your kids? <laughs> failing completely to understand that to be sensuous means to be aware. And that flowing of honey reminded me of the, the Jewish mind and imagination, a land flowing with milk and honey was what came into their minds when they wandered in the desert. The most sensuous experience. The body has to be aware of things. It can't be dulled with alcohol, with drugs, even with passion. We, we mutilate the body's sensitivity even with passion itself. Passion that is exclusive, that is, that is monolithic, that is of one type and one type alone. And you know there are a lot of that kind of things going around these days. Enough of that. Memory faithful to the past and awareness of the present. Most important, we should try to develop it. That's what I'm saying. We should try to come awake. We should try to develop a fidelity to our own past experiences and relive them and live them anew and go beyond the past. But don't deny it. Don't deny the past. Memory is absolutely necessary.
another quality that must be developed by the one who would be prudent is docility. Docility. Uh, he contrasts, Thomas contrasts that with curiosity. The one who is docile in the presence of being is the one who is open to it, who welcomes information but not gossip, who is not just curious about what his neighbor is doing, but who honestly wants to know his neighbor, who doesn't know what the latest stats are about this, that, or the other thing, but who truly does wish to know the environment and the society in which he lives, and his attitude, if it be an aid to prudence, must be an attitude of openness, of docility toward the objective reality of the other, and even of docility toward George Will, insofar as George Will has competence in the area where he's writing. It is proper, in other words, for one to be docile toward... Uh, what was that fellow who first... Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. He was the one who first went with the hips, wasn't he? Yes, Elvis Presley. It is quite proper to listen to Elvis as an authority in music. Well, in so, some sorts of music. But certainly to go to Elvis, as people did, as an expert in matrimony, was surely an, somewhat of an exaggeration of the real. In other words, docility toward others in the area of their expertise. Respect for the minds of others, always respect for the information they give us in the areas of their competence. This docility is required. This should be the quality and characteristic of the Christian mind. Then there is another quality that Thomas speaks of, an, an extremely difficult one. He calls it solertia, and there is no English equivalent of the word. Solertia, S-O-L-E-R-T-I-A. And he says, it is the ability, and it is, it is indeed acquirable. The ability to determine in a given situation where one has no time for reflection, what is right and what is to be done. Like, you know, as, as one of the French, modern French philosophers says, life doesn't trickle at you frequently. Life, life is, is shot at you out of a cannon. The ability to stand there and not be overcome by that. The ability to, to be so open that the mind accepts and receives the truth of that and then directs activity in accordance with the truth. That incredible maturity of mind and will that he calls solertia and for which, as I say, there is no modern English word. An ability to be, to be quick in judgment, to grasp quickly. It's the quality of a good general, for instance. He, he sees a, a potential battlefield and in one quick swoop of the eye, he sees where his cannons must be located, where his infantry should be held, where his cavalry will have to move, and the timing of it. And all of it comes to him in one quick, clear perception. And voila, they're, they're placed. Now, Stonewall Jackson, my fellow. Each one of us must develop this quality and indeed now pray for it too. But develop it as well because it is a part of our own effort. And it is indeed the fruit of the kind of consciousness of things that I've been talking about just a moment ago. And this docility toward things and toward others, which, which are the other two main requirements for conscience as noetic. Solertia. These three, actually, these three qualities are perhaps the main qualities of conscience or of prudence as, as an encounter with truth, a memory that is faithful to the past, 
including as it does that honest live encounter with the present that personal touch of the present that is first then secondly that reverence for the objective reality of the other that I'm not imposing on everything my own meaning and I'm listening that I realize that I am the recipient more than the giver in most situations and I receive from others from the other of the world the other of human beings the other of those with vast experience and knowledge I will have docility to those insofar as they merit that from me and then thirdly that ability to be to be quick to 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 be almost infallible when things are flung at us suddenly and we we keep our feet and our balance and the mind openly welcomes this cannon fire absorbs it and then comes out with what is needed in the order of action marvelous marvelous qualities these but qualities that should be sought by us developed by us practiced by us and then in the ordering of things for as i said um, prudence is not only the perception of what is real but the acting accordingly when prudence then turns to what is to be done and what is to be done usually almost invariably is in the midst of a multitude of complex situations there are almost an infinitude of of possibilities in the actual situation you see prudence turns what is known from the real onto the question what is to be done and quickly and suddenly and and with 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 a native ease acts in accordance with the truth what is needed here is what is called providence the ability to foresee the consequences of one's own actions hmm. that's a difficult thing the ability quickly to see the consequences the actual nature of the action first before it is performed and then the consequences and to be sure not absolutely sure as we'll see in a moment but morally sure that what is being done is in accordance with the truth in the most perfect accord with the truth are we ever absolutely sure no the future is still unknown to us we are not ever absolutely sure of the full consequence of our particular of any particular action that's worth taking and so there's a certain fear in the presence of action there always is but that fear has to be handled too and the ability to handle it is part of another virtue that we'll come to later our ability to proceed despite the absence of absolute certainty is part of the character of man and is part of the reason why we say man lives in the context of hope for hope is the promise of what is not yet but the moving toward it as though with certainty so here you have then a sort of a, a verbal description of the structure of prudence first of all as as a means of encountering the truth it has that that directness and honesty and immediacy of, of of experience of the true and that fidelity to one's own past a memory faithful to the past which is accurate faithful objective real 
And sometimes there we need direction from others. We need help. That's the first. The second is a docility. To be, to be teachable. And the know-it-all is not prudent. The know-it-all is usually quite stupid, in fact. I have another story about that, but I don't have time to tell it. Know nothing, fear nothing, was what a friend of mine said when his young son climbed up on a very rickety ladder to, to, to clean the eave shoots one day. And the father had warned him time and time again, don't do that, you'll fall off and break your neck. And the boy said, oh no, safe as a house. And he climbed up and down, up and down, up and down three or four times. And his father, when this managed, when the boy managed to survive this experience, his father turned to my brother, who happened to be standing by, and he said, know nothing, fear nothing. <laughs> Precisely, you see. The man who doesn't know anything at all is the one who's usually very opinionated. And usually he sees no problem at all in the future. Just follow me, folks. I'll lead you, follow me. <laughs> and we have a few of those running around these days, too, don't we? All right, now, there are two enemies we have to talk about, and they are very important. Two enemies of prudence. First of all, how they manifest themselves. A certain laziness in the presence of objective reality. A certain preoccupation with the self. That clouds everything else. A certain failure to be faithful to the past, which is usually an expression of prejudice in some way in our own minds. A general kind of lethargy, so that the mind is like, is like blah, you know. It's like what the television people obviously consider the American mind to be. You know what I mean? Unchallenged, unchallengeable, not wishing to be challenged, only to have fed at it some of the most wretched pablum that has ever been offered as insult to men and women of honor. Again, I watched a little of it. Um, I was watching, uh, I had this dreadful cold a couple of days ago and I sniffled all over the place and I didn't want to be sniffling during the, 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 the quiet movement in the Beethoven's Ninth. It's almost uh, indecent to do that, you know. So I, I turned it off and went out and turned on the television because the Olympics were on. And I saw Germany wallop us, unforgivably. But anyhow, uh, I, then, I then watched a little of the news. And uh, altogether, I should imagine, I watched not more than 45 minutes. And suddenly I felt as though the, uh, the ordinary ligaments that tied my being together were loosening. I was becoming... <laughs> And I said to myself, is this the effect of television? And I swear to you, it is. I think it happens to people. They sit there, they are, they're like, like old jackets draped upon a sofa, without movement. They're blah, they're dead. And this thing is going on and on, whining and whining, and telling them what beer to drink and what perfume to use and, and, and what what will affect the ladies and the gentlemen and whatever and all, all, all just fed constantly a stream of the greatest nonsense this lethargy of mind is a terrible thing it's a terrible thing 
We must avoid it. The inability to act in the presence of truth, the inability to do what is required of us, a lethargy again, a, a sort of deadness of fiber and muscle, an absence of, of the ability to, to get up and go. And Thomas says the source of all of these imperfections of prudence, he calls these incidentally, the source is, and now this was many, many years before Freud, the source, he says, is impurity. Now, what does he mean? By impurity, he doesn't mean just lust, of course. He means that preoccupation with the self, which makes the comfort of the self the paramount consideration. This is what produces the kind of paralysis I've been talking about. This, this mental, this mental darkness, this inability to become involved with anything, this insistence upon sitting in front of the boob tube instead of going out for a walk or out for a bicycle ride, or just going out to twiddle your thumbs or, or play tiddlywinks or whatever. This dreadful impotence in the presence of things, Thomas says, is due to the absence of purity of mind and of will in our perceptions of reality. In other words, God is not really God. We are God. And because we have made ourselves God, we have dulled the mind. And we have learned to love the darkness. Consider it. Consider it. I think it's a dreadfully important insight. But the second enemy, we have to be even more aware. Although, no, I think that is the worst these days. Although it is so beautiful, and I, I tell you this, and, and this is not Blarney. I, I'm not the greatest lecturer in the world, I'm aware of that, but it is marvelous to see so many of you leaving the boob tube and coming over here and listening to this kind of stuff after coming back from your jobs and quite frankly probably wishing with a certain part of yourself that you were elsewhere. But it is marvelous to see the mind still capable of, of this kind of concern with reality, this, this preoccupation with with what we might be missing. I think it's fantastic, and I compliment you for it. And I'll try to give your mind something worth missing television for. But the second thing that, that is the enemy of, of prudence is a false prudence, and this is terribly dangerous, and this is very close, in fact, to the kind of thing that people now understand when they use the word prudence. It's more cunning. The type of prudence that always has number one in focus. You know, always number one. Walk into a room, you say, you see all of these potential relations, you see. And number one, numero uno, is there. Eh? Okay, folks, here I am, you see. And everything that is done is done with one's advantage in mind. Everything. 
every word that is spoken is carefully couched for one's own advantage. No word is spoken that will irritate. Because after all, we want the admiration of these people. And so we will not irritate them. And besides, we despise a fight. We don't like an argument. Arguments are always messy, and somebody always loses something in an argument, and we don't lose anything. I want everything, you see. I want everything. I want adulation. I want to be, to be told how marvelous I am and how wonderful I am, and all of this bloody nonsense. And everything I do is cunningly done my own advantage and Thomas says the source of that particular imitation of prudence is covetousness we want everything he quotes Gregory on that too Gregory says covetousness is about those things that make us preeminent everything that puts us up and it doesn't matter how many are put down in the process. It doesn't matter how many faces we tread on. That really doesn't matter as long as they're not powerful. And as long as they can't hurt us, you see. Covetousness. We want possessions. We want power. We want influence. We want to manipulate then every set of circumstances in which we find ourselves. And it is no wonder then that prudence is... is, is is, well, a fatality, because we see nothing but ourselves. The sunset is not related to me. I am related to it. I am its spectator. Beethoven's ninth is not related to me. I am related to it. I am its theater. But when all things become so that they are related to me, and moi is always central, then cunning is the characteristic of my life. And I will be, oh, people will admire me. Yes, how clever he is. Boy, that guy never, never is guilty of a misstep. Huh? Always, always he has his eye on advantage. He's good. And if I were in the secular world, of course, I'd probably make a million bucks before I was 30. If I didn't, I'd steal it. Mm. Prudence is available to us. It is the means by which we can direct our lives, our actions, all of our actions, in the particular circumstances of our lives. In accordance with the truth in the mind of God. That ability is ours if we choose to develop it. Now there is a prudence that is given, of course, that is God's gift to us in grace. That's true. But that lies dormant until it is brought into action by my insistence upon coming awake to the reality of the world in which I live the reality of my own being, the reality of the people and the society in which I move. And when I come alive to that, 
and start acting in accordance with the truth that comes to me as a result of that alive presence. The nobility of action is almost unavoidable. And I will indeed at times make serious mistakes, but not more than once in any one given situation. I will sin, incidentally, although all sin is ultimately against prudence. But I will call it sin. I will not be unfaithful to reality. I will not be like the moderns who think it is all right to do anything you wish to do, providing you can say that it is all right. I will be faithful to what God says. And if God says toothpicks are to be used to pick one's teeth and crowbars to be used, are to be used to dig one's garden, I shall not use a crowbar on my teeth and a toothpick in my garden. I will live. I according to the light that I have seen. And I have seen it. Nobody has told me about it ultimately. They've taught me, yes. All sorts of people have tried to teach me. But ultimately it is I who must see. And I who must do it. It's like Thomas More when he talked to, to the dear Norfolk. And Norfolk was a a pretty typical Catholic in those times of Henry VIII. He couldn't see what, what Moore was troubled about with this whole business of the Pope. After all, he said, the Pope is only a prince. That's all. And it's only a theory anyway about his being in some way responsible to God as our leader. That's only a theory. And Moore said, yes, you're right. <laughs> it's only a theory. But you see, it happens that I believe. No. Not that I believe, but that I believe. Do I make myself obscure? I believe. I do what I know is correct. I go for no approval to anyone. This is, this is the imperious quality again of the prudent man. He does not act in accordance with the wishes of others. He is pleased if it pleases others. But he acts in accordance with truth. And he will rise or fall on the basis of truth. And of course that was the final question that the great Pilate asked of Jesus. But what is truth? We know what it is. 99.9% .9 of the time, we know what is true. It is that we just can't get ourselves to see it fully and then to act in accordance with it. In other words, we can't manage to be prudent. Choose prudence, practice it. Memory, docility, solatia. Providence. Avoid the enemies, unchastity and the divided heart, and covetousness, where moi is always number one.
God bless you. It's just about an hour. Thank you very much. Have some tea.